Hello, and welcome to Introducing Me. I'm your host, Sarah. I started this podcast to get to know other people and lifestyles while discovering more about myself. Each episode, I will give a new guest a chance to discuss their background, culture, interests, or whatever they want to talk about to help increase all of our own worldviews. Today, I would like to introduce you to Kent Weishouse. He is a licensed social worker with a previous career in television production. He recently released his book, Stop Breaking Down, How to Avoid Overwhelm and Crack Up. So Ken's got a lot of experience in a lot of things. So I'm excited to hear from him today, see what he's going on. So thank you so much, Ken. Why don't you go ahead and tell the audience a little bit more about yourself? Thanks, Sarah. Thank you for having me on the show. I, I'm honored to have been asked on. Uh, yes, uh, my previous career was in television production for a little over a quarter of a century. And then uh, in the in around 2006, I decided it uh, was uh, not really working for me, uh, not not so much financially. I was making a fair amount of money, but uh, spiritually, morally, I needed to do something that had more meaning and more positive value. So I made a switch. I went uh, back to college, got a master's degree, eventually became licensed in the state of California in social work. And uh, now I am a, uh, a therapist in private practice, and I've uh, recently written a book, um, written largely through the pandemic. Um, it's kind of uh, my own therapy, but um, it's called Stop Breaking Down, The Secret to Avoiding Overwhelm and Crack Up. And... Uh, I, I, as I said, it was largely for my own therapy, but then as I completed it a year or so ago, I, I realized there's a lot of valuable stuff here, and uh, I tried to reorganize it such that uh, it could be available to many people uh, in terms of how I wrote it and so on. Right. We've got a lot of places we can go in conversation. Um, I'd like to kind of go chronologically. I think that makes sense today. Can you talk a little bit about this career in television production that you had for, for so long before you decided, you know, morally and spiritually, you wanted to make a change and help people? Yeah, sure. Um, uh, back in, uh, back in the late seventies, early eighties, I started working in TV. Uh, I, I was, Funny, I, I went to school in Northern California, and then I moved back home uh, to my hometown of Los Angeles. And uh, I had a theater background. My original uh, degree was in theater arts, and then I gravitated towards television. Um, and I started working for uh, a man named Dick Clark for a couple of years, and uh, went on to various other shows after that. Um, and uh, did, a, did a sitcom for a little while, um, another dance show, countdown dance show for, for some time, a number of Disney specials that I was associate producer on. And uh, then eventually I wound up as the associate producer of the Arsenio Hall show, um, uh, read the original one back in the, around 1990. And uh, after that, um, various other shows that were most mostly tabloid oriented not entirely but i uh i went 
the, the low-hanging fruit seemed to be tabloid television, and um, that's largely what led me into uh, disillusionment <laughs> and, uh, and going into a different direction. And so what is it like being an associate producer? Like, what does your sort of day-to-day look like? Or like, what are you bringing to the shows? Ah, uh, a lot of it is hiring crew, arranging, making deals with crew, uh, uh, and then budgeting, uh, doing a budget for what it's going to cost and a budget report for how it came in. Um, and, uh, it's, it's funny, 30, 40 years ago, my title was associate producer. Now these people are line producers. The titles have all sort of morphed over the last few years. Um, uh, much of what I did was actually kind of therapeutic. I, I, I worked a lot with crew trying to help them keep balance uh, with um, uh, different politics going on within different shows and um and also running interference between the people who are my bosses and and what what the needs of the crew or or talent were. Um, so um, and also, I should say, um, I did produce a show of my own, uh, uh, which. Uh, which actually did not, <laughs> it was getting ready to air and uh, did not test well. So the pl- plug was pulled. So. And so was that like when that show was pulled and it didn't air, was that close to when you decided to leave or was it kind of in the middle of the career somewhere? Um, It was close to it. I I had already been uh, having ideas that maybe this wasn't the healthiest thing to be putting out into the world, all this uh, programming. Um, And, uh, but and the, actually, the, the show that was pulled was going to be a reality show about having to do with high school students. And in retrospect, it's probably a good idea that it was pulled. Um, so, um, so yeah, uh, that was after that, though. I, I worked on shows, um, shows like uh, Hard Copy, Entertainment Tonight, uh, I worked for E Entertainment Television, and um, and uh, just came to understand that it was not a good, it, it was not healthy. What I was putting out into the world was not. I won't say it was blanketly unhealthy, but it was probably doing more harm than good. So, right, it wasn't kind of giving that value add to uh, kind of personal mental education, whereas right. now you've switched into, you know, the line of social work. So what was it like going back to get a master's, um, not, you know, in your twenties and, and having to work to being a licensed social worker? Well, going back to school was, for me, was really great. I, I wasn't sure of what, how I was going to do, but, um, I, I just gobbled everything up. It was like, um, I was hungry for knowledge and new theories and new ways of looking at the world, new ways of understanding the world. And social work was a perfect uh, fit as far as a profession to to follow and a degree to get. Um, 
I, I actually got straight A's all through my master's classes. And, um, and so, uh, you know, I was in my mid fifties when I went back and, um, and it, it worked out quite well. I enjoyed it quite a bit, much more than I, I, I thought I would. I remember at one point I, I was in danger of getting a B in a certain class and, uh, <laughs> and my wife said, uh, you know, it's okay if you get a B. You don't have to get all A's. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, um, so yeah, I really enjoyed it. Um, you know, compared to my twenties, I, I enjoyed school in my twenties, but it was much more of a chaotic time where um, I, I wasn't, I wasn't as concerned with soaking up the knowledge as I as I was in later in life. And so, then, what was the transition into having your own private practice? Um. Well, I had various internships, uh, including two in mental hospitals, um, which were also tremendous learning experiences, um, things that you read about, you see sensationalized in media. When you're there in the trenches, it's a very different uh, experience. And... Um, and so, yeah, I, I was actually, th those were both really good experiences. I, I um, if, if I was, if I wanted to work that hard again, I probably would go back to working in mental hospitals. Um, the, uh, and, and then another one was at a community clinic in South LA, which was also very, a very good experience. Um, so, uh, so and then so yeah after that <laughs> I, I accumulated uh, on the ground hours basically is how you know is what's required by the licensing board and uh, eventually applied for my license and got it um, I worked at a school um, a little bit after that and then transitioned into a private school actually and then transitioned into a private practice shortly after that. So you mentioned kind of the sensational aspect that you know the public might see from a mental hospital and of course having worked in television you're aware of you know what media puts out there would you be willing to share a little bit of like what it is actually like in a mental hospital or at least the ones that you were able to intern with well it's interesting you ask because this is a, it's a lot it dovetails into a lot of what my book is about um that people become unable to cope and um, in, in the modern world. Um, now, I'm not gonna say everybody that was in there uh, was there because of that, but a lot of people, I think, um, were faced with uh, not just the overwhelming uh, input of media and traffic and modern world noise and stimulation, um, but but also uh, where we where we've come as far as uh, wealth redistribution um, that um, there is a, a noticeable point uh, we the the baby boomers were born into perhaps the greatest wealth redistributive time in in the in in history uh, between 1940 and 1980. Um, top tax brackets were very, very high. And uh, that all got undone. And consequently now, slowly but surely between 80 and now, you, you have 
uh, the erosion of middle class and um, and and what I experienced was a number of people with poverty nipping at their feet, falling out of the middle class, which is a whole new kind of stressor. Um, uh, one of the uh, one of the authorities in my book, uh, Nobel Prize winning psychologist named Daniel Kahneman, talks about the endowment effect, meaning uh, once you have something uh, that that you believe is yours, uh, it's extremely distressing uh, to to see it uh, taken away, evaporate slowly but surely. And I think many people now are are dealing with um, cognitive and mental stresses as their middle class status is is slowly being um, chipped away at. In the mental hospital experience, there was a fair amount of that. Uh, people who had become recently homeless. Um, I remember one case where a person had parked their motorhome they were living in, the last place they were able to live, and, and it was towed away, and they, they, had, they were now, for the first time, homeless. And, uh, and uh, it was real, real illumination, real eye-opening for me. Definitely. Now, are these sort of topics the same sort of work you're doing in private practice, or do you have a different focus? Uh, my my clients are mixed. Some of them um, are struggling greatly financially, the uh, living on disability, um, things like that. Others are um, affluent, upper middle class. Um, and uh, some are downright wealthy, uh, but most of them fall between, you know, doing okay middle class and and close to destitution. And does your, like, are your services able to be approved by health insurance that people who are struggling financially, if they have insurance, can use that? Or is there some sort of, like, safeguards that the people who need it and might not be able to afford it can still get help? Um, well, <laughs> we, we get into a very thorny area here. Yes, I, I take uh, two different insurances um, that over the years I've come to understand are much easier to deal with than most insurances. Um, and so I've rejected the others, which I think is the experience of many therapists. Um, if, if an insurance pays relatively well and is easy to deal with, um, you're, and you don't have to invest a lot of cognitive energy in dealing with them, you take them because you want to save that cognitive energy for your clients. Um, uh, people who are on Medi-Cal, Medicaid, uh, the rest of the country calls it, um, do have different choices, uh, but many of them um, do not provide do not provide uh, consistently good choices. I'm happy to say uh, the the counties that I work in. Um, uh, one of them, Riverside County, uh, has a really good way of channeling their uh, their Medi-Cal, Medicaid, uh, into an insurance called Inland Empire Health Program, which uh, does a really good job. Riverside County and that program uh, are outliers in my experience. Uh, most other counties I, I have looked at um, have very... Uh, uh, fragmented um, 
manifestations of low income insurance that that don't pay well and that um, that are that provide plenty of uh, hurdles for practitioners to deal with, as well as people to sign up for, for that matter. <laughs> and I do feel like sometimes living in the states that like California is its own little progressing further ahead in certain things. So, you know, the fact that some counties have better access than others, you know, just kind of speaks to the whole chasm of the states. Yes. Yeah. And, and the whole state of uh, medical sh- insurance in general, uh, fragmentation, extremely fragmented. Yes. And you mentioned kind of the, I don't remember how you phrased it, but sort of the mental load and the reasons why you accept some insurance and not because you want to focus on your patients. So being in a private practice, are you sole proprietor that you're doing everything or do you have additional support? I, I pretty much do everything. I do have a billing service uh, that helps me with a big chunk of it. Um, and I feel bad about paying them too much money. But at the same time, I don't feel that bad because a lot of the cognitive load on me, they take over. So and that, that is worth something. Uh, exactly. When you talk about, you know, mental well-being and balancing everything, getting rid of that cognitive load, I'm sure is great. Now, do you have any sort of like retirement plans? Are you going to continue working at the same level of clients since you've, you had a 25 plus year career already? Right. Well, uh, funny you should ask. I call myself semi-retired. I only work two days a week. Um, and so, and really two half days a week, if I can do it, um, uh, I, I am privileged enough to have, uh, saved enough money from my previous career, uh, and done well in real estate, uh, such that, um, I don't have to work more than that. Uh, uh, my, my wife also has a good career on kind of in show business as well, um, and which is up and down for her. But but um, but yeah, so I'm semi-retired. <laughs> I try not to take new clients. I, if people may listen to this and may, may want to try and see me as a practitioner, it's extremely unusual that I take new clients. So when did you kind of like stop taking new clients sort of in the career of first getting clients? It's interesting. Uh, just before COVID hit, I made a decision to scale way back, uh, and uh, and then COVID hit, and those plans were scuttled because people were really distressed. And uh, I took a number of more clients uh, during that early first year of COVID 20, uh, 2020. Um, and uh, but now I'm I'm trying to uh, as you know, people graduate out, people get better. And I'm trying to, um, after they leave, I'm trying not to take new ones as opposed to what I did before, which was, oh, I've got a vacancy. I can take a new person. <laughs> and so how did COVID sort of change your workload besides for the influx of people? Did you, were you doing remote work? Were you doing in person? Like what sort of tangible services changed? Good question. Um, yeah, it all, it all went to remote. 
for me, um, which changed the equation drastically. Um, prior to that, uh, I, I had made plans to, to work every other week and see people in person prior to COVID uh, in, in, in my office. And went, almost immediately when COVID hit, it all went to virtual. Um, and, and in the last uh, 18 months or so, I have seen people in person, but it's very infrequent. Those are outlying sessions now, whereas uh, it is normal now to do it all virtually for me. Right. And you mentioned earlier a little bit of kind of why you decided to write this book um, and sort of everything you've experienced. So can you talk a little bit about writing the book and kind of switching from the I'm writing this to myself to I want to publish this and get it out there to more people? I was trying to make sense uh, out of more and more people's diverging views of uh, of our world. In other words, uh, I, I, I feel like I grew up and flourished in a world where there was a mostly common view that, that what I talk about in the book is intersubjectivity. So we're all subjective creatures, but we're interlaced subjectively so that we see things in a common way. And I, I was trying to make sense of why is this unraveling? Why do we not see things in such a common way anymore? And it's becoming more and more acute. Um, you know, I, I don't want to talk about politics, though that was quite distressing to me, um, as opposed to um, individuals, individuals struggling with functioning. Um, and I think uh, there, there is an overlap where, where divergent views, which are becoming extremely divergent views, which are becoming more and more common, um, uh, I think is, is affecting quite a few people negatively just in terms of their functioning. Um, that they, that, that, and I, these are some of the ways my, they're manifesting in my clients. And so does your book kind of go through kind of like explaining those sort of viewpoints of the world and then like how to cope with and like work through such yeah. diverging views? Well, one thing that I, you know, many people, many uh, very intelligent and important people have written and theorized about why people struggle and um, cognitively, functionally. Um, what be, what's, uh, first of all, I tried to step back. I was Social work trains people in systems thinking, systems theory. So I, I tried to employ that and step back, step back, step back. Um, it occurred to me with some studies that human cognition, human consciousness is a self-aware consciousness. Um, in the book, I call it I, me, mine consciousness. Um, uh, Canadian uh, researcher and professor named Endel Tulving calls it autonoetic consciousness, as opposed to what he conjectures animals have, noetic 
So a self-aware I, me, mine consciousness um, versus a more noetic consciousness, uh, which is, I, I struggle to put this into words, but again, I don't, I'm not claiming to have proof of this. I theorize that animals uh, experience cats, dogs, elephants, whales, experience things, events as something happening. This is, this is, uh, pain is, hunger is, eating is, right? As opposed to us humans, I am eating, um, I'm feeling pain. And it's personal. You give me pain, <laughs> um, uh, and and so we 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 have the ability for abstract thinking, which is which again is, I theorize is largely different from animals. Um, we can think about the future. We can ruminate on the past, and we create stories about the here and now. And the big part of that is that we create stories. Um, I suspect animals do not create stories. Something is or is not. Something is nurturing or something is harmful. Move towards the nurturing, move away from the harmful. Um, and so in writing the book, I wanted to explore this. I wanted to explore how self-aware autonoetic consciousness is both a source of great strength for the human race, because we are able to collaborate and have a common vision, um, a common pro-social vision where we invent things and share them, and and we've taken over most of the world, for better or worse. Um, but at the same time, it may, it, I suggest, I suspect, it is the source of most of our quote-unquote neuroses. So the stories we tell ourselves become dis many times distorted stories. And as we repeat them, these distorted stories, they feel more and more true because we're able to repeat them. It's, it's not that something simply is, as a dog might see it. It is this bad thing happens is happening to me. Or this bad thing happened to me, and I'm going to keep thinking about it. It's going to always. And as as we ruminate on the past, this does have an effect on our viscera, our muscles, and our bones. They, the 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 sort of bottoms up part of us that is created is connected rather to our cognitive parts. Um, as we think about these things, they remain fresh in our body, as opposed to animals who um, tend to shake things off. If they survive a cataclysm, they'll shake it off and move on. Now, they may, there may be a schema imprinted on their brain that says, uh, danger at that water hole, right? But it's not, they're trying to kill me over there. It's just, don't go there. <laughs> um, and so, again, this is all theory, um, but I, I, I don't see anyone else examining the I, me, mine, autonoetic, self-aware consciousness as a, as a source of our uh, both tremendous uh, strengths, but also uh, great vulnerabilities as a species. Yeah, and it's very fascinating to hear you talk about this theory and kind of how it works through it, because like, as someone with 
zero background in any sort of mental health, social work, anything like that. It's not something I necessarily think about, but it's something that like I can understand and can appreciate and realize like, you know, life has changed. People's mindsets have changed. What is the mental health reaction to all of that? Right. And I, I, I try and point out a history uh, in in the book um, that really, when you look at just our recent history, it's only been in the last hundred years that we've had to deal with an onslaught of media. Um, it was the late 19th century that photographs became a way of quickly sharing images. The early 20th century radio Shortly after that, they the, the two were merged, film and film and and sound, um, and now anybody uh, with a with a phone has got a way of making a movie and sharing an idea instantly, and and so n- hundreds of millions of ideas are being shared as we speak, um, and this is this is brand new for our species. In other words, previously, uh, you know, you can go back to Gutenberg's invention of the printing press 500 or so years ago, 550, I think, um, uh, where suddenly printed words were a way of more rapidly sharing ideas. Because before that, it was just one to one or maybe going to a theatrical setting and having an idea shared. But other ideas were shared one to one, perhaps in in coffee houses or 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 where where people congregated. But so books started making ideas shareable more universally. Uh, but it took a while, long time for people to become literate. And then uh, then again, early twentieth century, uh, these things start to coalesce in film, audio, um, to the point where now. Uh, we all have this ability to share things immediately across the planet. And um, I don't know that we're ready for that developmentally or evolutionarily. Yes, it did all happen very quickly. Um, and as someone who's lived not through a lot of it, but has just like kind of seen the repercussions and like grown with the advancement of technology at this rapid pace that like, I realize that people who are generations above me, like, don't have those same experiences. It is, you know, it is a sticking point in even just communication and interaction, let alone mental health. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so so I, I began to think that this onslaught of ideas, along with just urban life um, and even, you know, uh, small towns or 150, 200,000 people now. There's a certain amount of urban noise uh, uh, and, and, and experiences that, again, just 100 years ago were foreign to us. 120 years ago were foreign to us. Um, and so we, uh, just in the last three or four generations, have had to rapidly and quickly adapt to uh both sensory stimulation as well as cognitive stimulation. And, uh, you know, I, I know there's no turning back, <laughs> but uh, I would like 
I guess if, if there's anything that I'd like to accomplish with the book is to point people towards slowing down their thinking, thinking about their thinking to examine and other people's thinking to, to examine what are distortions, what is happening inside my body as a reaction to the to this stimulation, whether uh, it's sensory or cognitive. Um, how can I step back and and examine the story I'm telling myself or the story I'm being told? Um, it's it's a huge challenge, but um, uh, the ability to at least being able to increase doing that to some degree, I think, will help us. And then I I, uh, I, I go into other other sort of longer term approaches, uh, uh, attachment theory is a theory that is, uh, not widely understood, although I understand it's gaining traction on places like TikTok and so on. Um, uh, it's, it's not widely understood, uh, but attachment theory with uh, attachment styles, both for young people and adults, can well statistically it's been shown a more secure attachment is a predictor doesn't mean it's one causes the other just statistically it's more likely it's a predictor of more social rather pro-social behavior um, that people are able to modulate their own uh, behavior more when they have a when they have experienced a more secure attachment in youth and not that that can't be changed also as an adult if someone grew up with a less than secure attachment as an adult it can still be altered so that more uh, pro-social and self-regulatory uh, experiences can be had so the book talks a lot about that <laughs> yeah and i think it's great to you know have that exploration in your book and you know, to get to get the preview of some of these bigger ideas. And you've mentioned a couple different, you know, professionals in, you know, these sort of works. So it sounds like maybe that you're, you know, continuing to learn as time goes on. And you're also connecting with other professionals to make sure you have a good understanding. Is is that correct? Yeah, well, uh, in several different ways. Um that there are professionals who I read their work pretty regularly. I look out for it and I read it. Um, now, I'm not going to say I know them personally, uh, but uh, people like uh, Bessel van der Kolk, uh, Peter Levine, uh, um, Brene Brown, um, several others that uh, Daniel Siegel, um, these are great thinkers uh, who I follow them pretty regularly. Um, I do have a group of colleagues that I meet with regularly as, as well, and we share ideas. Um, one, of the, one of the groups that I, I meet with, uh, we are all EMDR practitioners, eye movement desensitization and reprocessing practitioners. And so we meet to discuss uh, a lot of um, various different ways of improving our work with clients and 
I generally bring in the uh, the self-aware consciousness part <laughs> to those meetings. <laughs> yes, and it sounds like, you know, a, a good network of people. And so you've found yourself, you know, some comfort in this field. Have you ever thought at all about any sort of going back into television production or similar styled fields? Yes. Um, I, 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 so a couple of years ago, I had a project that I'd started a couple of decades ago that I thought this is a valuable project. Um, and, uh, it was about, uh, uh, I, I won't get into it, but it was historically about a, a, a female in the 19th century who lived in a patriarchal male dominated world. Um, and she, uh, achieved great success on her own. Her name was Suzanne Valadone. She was a, uh, contemporary of Renoir's and Picasso and, uh, and, uh, a number of other, uh, or, you know, uh, impressionist-based uh, themed artists, and she she achieved great uh, success on her own uh, later in life, especially. And I so I thought, okay, uh, I'd like to develop um, some kind of film or miniseries about her because um, she was uh, she stood out. And so I shot this around uh, with former colleagues uh, and. Uh, it's still being shopped around a little bit, but uh, I don't have great hopes for it. <laughs> um, and then I, I guess I'll say, yeah, people approach me from time to time, old friends or colleagues approach me from time to time and ask me what I think about this project or that. I have one thing right now that I'm trying to help an old friend uh, get off the ground just by connecting him with, with other uh, former colleagues. So. And do you consume a lot of television or movies or media in general? You know, I hate to admit it, but I do. Um, <laughs> uh, this this may be the result of my own aging process, but um, yeah, uh, I I really enjoy historical fiction um, that's more based on history than fiction. Um, and, um, and then various comedy things that, uh, that help me unwind. But not the reality sort of no. TV. No, 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 <laughs> no. Um, no, uh, I think you asked one of your other guests, where do you get your news? And, uh, I laughed when I heard you ask that, uh, I only get my news from reading and several different sources. So, uh, <laughs> Now and then, I will stick my toe into social media pointed towards a news item just to see what's being bandied about. But social media and media in general, um, they focus on outlying events and magnify them such that uh, they become uh, what, what Daniel Kahneman calls uh, quite available. And, and, and as well as they, they anchor us into a certain point of view so that if we see car crashes, political events, people being shamed over and over and over and over and over with, with multiple comments about it, suddenly this is, this is just very normal and happens 
happens all the time and it's all around me. And in fact, they're outlying events and they, they distort our thinking. Um, and so, again, it's just important to step back and go, OK, well, I'm seeing this event 100 different times in the last hour. How is this a distortion? How is this an outlying event? How is this influencing my thinking? Definitely something to uh, be aware of and keep in mind of, especially on social media. You know, there's always the joke, you know, if you see it on Facebook, it must be true. Uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> right. But I mean, I would say the same the same thing has become more and more true with with news on television. I is my perception, which is why I do not get any news from television. Um, you know, again, it goes double for social media. But um, the idea with television uh, is that we're trying to sell more of our sponsors' products. So how can we get you to watch more? Um, so funny on one on one show I. I was the associate director of one show and I rolled in the wrong 10 second fee spot one day. Um, and, and that afternoon I was called up to the boss's office and uh, he was kind of a gruff guy. He talked like this and he said, don't you get it? This show is wraparound for commercials. And, and uh, a light bulb went off. Yeah, now I get it. Um, we're here to sell the sponsor's products. So, Yeah. It's, you know, it's a, people got to make their money. Now, before I start to wrap things up, is there anything else you would like to share with the listeners today? Um, well, uh, I would say uh, go to my website, which is kentw.net. Check out the book um, on Amazon. I think you can read the first chapter or two for free um, and uh, see if it uh See if it makes sense and might help you in uh, your travels through our fragmented world. <laughs> Great. Now, at the end of all my episodes, I do ask my guests a random question. So my question for you is, what grade in school was the most difficult? Oh, wow. That's a good one. Uh, you know, I think it would be, uh, in my time... Um, middle school was called junior high. I think it would be entering junior high. Seventh grade uh, was the most difficult because I was transitioning from the elementary school where structure and people and things were all predictable into a vast new area where um, there were a lot more bullies um, and a lot more choices. Um, and the class Classes went from not one teacher all day long to six different teachers for the six different periods. And so uh, it was a difficult adjustment, I think. All right, that brings this episode to a close. So as Kent mentioned, his website brings you directly to his book along with some other information. So that will be directly in the description if you'd like to check all of that out and find his book on Amazon. And of course, if you'd like to connect with the podcast, our website is in the description as well. It brings you to all of our past episodes, all of our past resources and social media from prior guests, along with links to our social media. We are on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. It's always great to have the support and following those pages. And if you'd like to support the podcast monetarily, there's a link to do that in the description as well. 
And if you have a story you would like to share and be a guest on the show, my email is in the description. That is always the best way to reach out to me. So thank you so much, Kent, for spending time with me today and to my listeners for taking the time out of your day to hear a new story. Until next time, bye. Bye Bye-bye and thanks for having me on, Sarah. I really appreciate it.